So joining me is Dr. Naomi Wood this time on the podcast. Welcome, Naomi. Thank you for having me, Wesley. I'm so glad you could make some time to talk to Philip Pullman over the summer here. Um, you just said that you're uh, on your vacation right now, so I, I do really appreciate it. Um, and with that in mind, I guess, uh, could you talk a little bit first about your, your work, your teaching, your writing, and how you got interested in Philip Pullman's work? Um, I am a professor of children's and young adult literature at Kansas State University. So I've been um, reading and teaching this material for a long time. Um, when I was a kid, one of my favorite series was the Narnia series. Sure. And so um, I loved that, uh, gradually became disenchanted with some aspects of it, but continue to think of it as you know, sort of one of my cornerstone um, fantasy series. Um, and when Pullman's series came out, I was just enthralled by it. I had already read his um, Sally Lockhart series, and I mm -hmm. thought that was really great. But um, the Golden Compass slash Northern Lights just blew me away. And I was just on tenterhooks for the next mm -hmm. seven years waiting for the other books to come out. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And are you still following his, his subsequent releases as well? The Book of Dust? Oh, yes. Yes. Okay. I was so excited when the Book of Dust came out um, this last fall. Um, I had a, a group of uh, students and other faculty. We went out to supper to talk about it one evening because we were all so excited to, to get it. So that was, that was a lot of fun. And we're all looking forward to the next, next uh, installment. Yeah, definitely. I, uh, I see that you've published quite uh, prolifically and, and at least some of that is about Philip Pullman. Um, mm -hmm. how, did you first, how did you make the jump from you know, being a lover of fantasy uh, and then maybe a, a sort of disillusioned reader of fantasy <laughs> back to um, back to doing this for a living. Um, how did how did that come about? Um, I think well, there's there's lots of ways of answering that question, but um, one way is to talk about the uh, canon and canonicity questions that oh. were percolating in the academy when I was in graduate school in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of uh, professors of mine at the time, like Jane Tompkins, were radically challenging the way that literary value is set. And it opened a space for me to start thinking seriously about books I'd always liked but didn't have any uh, cultural capital um, with the academy or with other things. So I started um, being able to justify academically my interest in children's literature. And because I also am very interested in religion and theology, mm -hmm. um, I find myself drawn to fantasy writers who are interested in dealing with those big issues, those big issues about God and origins and uh, where we come from and where we're going. Well, so the canon and canonicity, could you elaborate a little bit? I haven't heard that, that latter term. I, I'm sort of familiar with the idea of a, a canon of great books and maybe even um, a canon of, you know, 
authoritative texts or something like that. And I can mm -hmm. see, you know, issues with both of those senses of it. But um, yeah, I'm not familiar with um, um, your, your professor uh, Tompkins either. Um, uh, Jane Tompkins wrote a great book on um, American sentimental fiction hmm. in uh, the 19th century. And one of her basic questions was, what's so bad about sentimentality? And just the audacity of asking that kind of question and saying, so, uh, why, why should we dismiss it? Why should we um, categorically deny its importance, especially when so many ordinary people, ordinary readers, really respond well to that and have um, a certain amount of, uh, are, are motivated by it. And her, her big example is Uncle Tom's Cabin, which yeah. is admittedly sentimental, but was instrumental in creating a movement that um, helped lead in part to um, uh, the abolition of slavery in this country. So, um, so her, the way she posed that um, canonicity then is the process by which something becomes canonized or how it is designated as canonical. And um, once you start looking at who decides, you realize that the same people who are in power in other ways are also in power deciding what's what counts as good. Right. And so um, that being able to question that paradoxically then allowed me to start seriously examining some of the things that I was interested in anyway. Gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah, I, I, I think I thought first of Uncle Tom's Cabin. I also thought of that part in um, Huckleberry Finn where they're sort of making fun of the very sentimental poetry that the one character is writing. Um, so I, I oh yes, yes, um, it's it's a wonderful episode, and and Twain is brutal, isn't oh, he? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's completely brutal, and there's part of me that loves that too. You know, yeah. I, I'm a big fan of Terry Pratchett as oh, well yeah. as Philip Pullman. So it, so I I admire and I enjoy people who can. Uh, dismantle the pretensions of sentimentality as well as recognizing and being susceptible to its power. Um, the ending of some of Oscar Wilde's fairy tales, for example, are sentimental but so incredibly potent. For sure, yeah. I, I mean, it's it's clearly something like you said. These are very popular works gen in general, and and so it's interesting then that you know in theory. Um, we're we're in a, a, a sort of a political situation of democracy, right? Of, of mm -hmm. people, you know, what the people like is what is going to be in power and, and so forth. But then in practice, you know, you see the same sort of thing happen there where uh, actually there's um, very sort of entrenched uh, forces that, that undermine that um, ostensible democracy. Um, yeah, yeah. Like, that, do you feel like that has begun to shift in the in the approach to sort of non-canonical or previously dismissed um, areas of literature? Definitely in the academy and the study of literature it's happened. You now can go to a master's program like K-State or a PhD program to study children's literature in particular. That didn't used to be possible. Yeah. 
Um, there's more and more programs that are focusing on science fiction and fantasy and other genre fiction. So that genre fiction itself has become more um, acceptable. Uh, some creative writing programs now are allowing their students to write genre fiction. That used to be pretty uh, unusual and still is in a lot of places. So I think there's movement toward that. At the same time that um, you could say that the academy as a whole is also under attack. So at the moment where things are breaking apart and breaking open is also the time when the whole legitimacy of uh, the institution is being called into question. So I don't know how, whether those things go together or, you know, as long as we held to the great white male uh, standard of literary canonicity, if that was going to um, sort of support the status quo uh, now that that has broken apart, does that mean that the powers that be no longer value what the academy has to offer? I don't know. Right, right. yes. I'm not going to argue for a causal relationship, but I think it's interesting. No, they definitely seem to be interrelated in some fashion. Um, that, yeah, so, so with the, um, the uh, popularity right, of fantasy um, and the ways in which fantasy seems to kind of draw upon those those grand narratives uh, like epics and myths and things, um, I, I see a kind of uh, convergence of those two aspects. You know, the thing that was held up as great in the past, and the thing that is actually popular today. And and maybe that sort of started with Tolkien in a, or around that time, possibly. Um, you know, Lewis is definitely within that same conversation. And I think Pullman, you know, as much as he vociferously contends that he is very different. He really does seem to fit along with those um, those authors in that same space. Um, and and I, I guess that that is kind of a, maybe a transition though with Pullman to, um, to sort of question the thing even as he applies its power uh, to get to tell his story. You know, um, it's, it's mm -hmm. a little confused as I try to articulate that, but, but that's something I, I know that you are thinking about in your work, and maybe you could just kind of help me disentangle that a little bit. Oh, I don't know if I can, but I'll try. <laughs> um, what I love about Pullman um, is that he loves all the old stuff, yeah. you know, all of these old stories, and all of, and he digs into them, and he discovers new ways of telling them. Um, there's an ancient tradition in um, uh, Judaism called Midrash, mm -hmm. which is where you tell stories in order to interpret scripture. Mm -hmm. And if there's a gap somewhere in the Bible that doesn't really explain what was going on, you can tell a Midrash to um, explain what's going on. And Midrash is where some of his interesting names and characters are coming from, as well as other places. So that I think people have always wanted to do a kind of fan fiction, if you will, of the major texts of our culture. Um, and that includes the story of the fall. And so I would put um, Paradise Lost alongside uh, his dark materials as both versions of fan fiction for talking about the world of Genesis. 
Um, I don't know if that's really answering your question, though. Uh, to to get around that, I think um, Pullman is both hypercanonical, right? He's sort of arguing for the the value of epic, for example, um, and yet also hyper non-canonical because he's challenging the kind of um, critical modes of the contemporary moment where um, elite liter literary uh, organizations stress um, realism or experimental fiction or other kinds of um, uh, counter narratives to, well, maybe not counter narrative, but but ways of undoing and challenging narrative expectations. And Pullman's like, no, no, we need a good story. Yeah. We need we need something that speaks to us where we're at, and something that um, explains the big stuff in the world to us. And that and and he says, and I like this about him, and here again, he's like Lewis, um, is that sometimes children's stories are the best stories for talking about the big ideas. Yeah, that, that is very helpful, I think, actually. I, I know I sort of lobbed a, a really tricky uh, sort of curveball there. Um, so let me try to ask a simpler uh, version of it, I guess. Um, and I, I, I really like that idea of, of interpretation taking the form of a story. Um, I think that's that's a really interesting uh, way to think about maybe what um, what Pullman's up to in some of his fiction even. Um, but what do you think of his um, his theory of, of authorship um, and how that enters into this uh, question of, of canonicity uh, and grand narratives and things? You know, he, he talks about how he is at once sort of the tyrant, he gets to decide what happens in the story. And yet he also talks in other places about how he, and this is very Louisian, I guess, you know, he has to follow the story. It sort of leads him and he is its servant. Um, he needs to kind of allow it to unfold in the way that seems natural um, rather than forcing it in, in a way that he might prefer, think that would be, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I I take that back to Plato, right? Mm -hmm. Where inspiration is something you you are um, to become a poet. You have to be open to the divine madness of inspiration, and so you can't necessarily control what it is that you want to say um, if if it's going to work as a story. So um, yeah, I think all of us writers sort of have to deal with that paradox that on the one hand we have to be in control of what we're writing we have to uh, work on our craft we have to structure and edit and um, express our ideas in the the best possible ways but oftentimes if we let that editing superego function override the id and <laughs> the id is what sort of gives it, I don't know, the potency and the the, uh, the color that it needs to be a good argument or a good story. Yeah, yeah, I think I, I maybe that's sort of what's deficient. I don't know, I used to teach writing at uh, the high school level and uh, and maybe there's just too little id, you know, and sometimes in what, you know, students are writing, they think they, 
they have to just sort of follow a certain formula um, and they, mm -hmm. they, don't mm -hmm. get, they don't get passionate about the, the, <laughs> the material the way you might like. Uh, yeah. Well, and there, there's also that, um, the challenge of how do you, I, I think the, the appeal of a fairy tale or an epic is that you kind of have the structure already so that you can put your own stuff in it. And there's a wonderful image um, Madeline Langle uses in A Wrinkle in Time where she has um, one of the Mrs. W characters. I can't remember which one, but she, she talks about how a sonnet has a particular form, yeah. but that you can put anything into that form. And I think that's, that's often what's really useful about these inherited forms that we've got is that yeah, you can take this inherited form, but then you can really mess with it. Like um, Chino Mievel does in On London when he makes the sidekick the main character um, and completely demolishes the whole idea of the idea of the, the chosen one. Um, but he needs that structure in order to demolish it. And so I, I, I see that as, as uh, how authors are both sort of indebted to their traditions, indebted to their genres, but also able to make decisions about what they do and do not want to happen within those uh, spaces. Yeah, well, so there's a, there's a kind of conscious uh, subversion going on there, um, a, a disobedience, right, to take the kind of mm -hmm. um, uh, archaic language or, or whatever, but, but then there's also this, um, this unconscious element, and I guess I don't know enough about the Freudian or where it stands at these, these days, like whether the, it is totally unconscious or not. But but anyway, there's that thing that yeah seems to sort of be outside of your control, which is maybe the really interesting thing um, that, that that finds mm -hmm. a place within these these structures, right? So they do seem to be sort of interrelated. Again, um, that that consciousness question is another one that that Pullman seems really interested in, and I think speaks to in a really interesting way, um, especially once you start to unfold all of the different aspects of, of, of dust, right, in his yes. cosmos. Um, have, you got a, have you got a good lead on what dust is and, and how to think about it in terms of human consciousness or, or human consciousness? I don't know. Uh, I love... I love the idea of dust, yeah. and I love what he does with it in the third uh, volume in the Amber Spyglass, where dust is sort of what makes the universe, um, and it's what what makes angels, and it what it's attracted to humans, and it's attracted to anything that wants to figure stuff out. I love the idea that consciousness is the product of evolution and the attraction of symbiotic um, elements from all over space. Yeah. Um, and, and that has some, I don't know, there's some scientific justification for that when, when you hear some uh, astrophysicists talking about how the reason we have red blood is that that's part of uh, dead stars um, whose residue uh, creates iron, which ends up in our bloodstream. I mean, it's pretty wacky cosmic stuff, and <laughs> dust works for me that way. 
that it's not in it in and of itself consciousness, but that it is attracted to and uh, is becoming consciousness. So that it's part of um, our connection with all of, for lack of a better word, and this is really begging the question, creation, <laughs> so all of, of the um, universe, that, that this is part of how we uh, engage and interact with the universe. Yeah, yeah, that, that aspect of it as a, um, an attractive force um, has, I think, some interesting um, echoes from from a kind of medieval worldview, like in uh, I don't know Dante or something, right? Where love is the thing that sort of like keeps the the cosmos uh -huh. going. Um, it it's interesting, I guess, the ways in which um, Pullman takes from and and adapts all of this kind of older material and yet also you know he does have a certain um interest in really modern science too like mm -hmm. right there like the sort of astrophysics and what he calls experimental theology in Lyra's world um, mm -hmm. that, that sort of that sort of mashup of those two you know forms of of knowing um i find to be to be really interesting in his writing um i know some people go so far as to you know make the case that he's really writing science fiction actually and i don't know hmm. how far to go with that but it is interesting that that's another way in which he's kind of breaking down sort of genre uh, expectations or something yeah yeah absolutely yeah well okay so the dust question is one that I really like to ask and think about, but the, the kind of corresponding question with that is, of course, about demons, right? Um, which are sort of the great idea that Pullman, you know, uh, holds up uh, as original, as you know, sort of his, his great insight uh, as he's mm -hmm. written, um, that gets the story to kind of hold together. Um, so as far as demons go, um, there's a few interesting things about them, but one is that they seem to represent this kind of problem of consciousness um, within different characters. Uh, and, and in different worlds, they do so in, in sort of different ways. Like in Lyra's world, they're, they're visible. In our world, they are invisible normally, but maybe not entirely. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. so, so as far as the demon as a, a part of, of people, but also sort of a guardian spirit sort of thing, um, I, I, I wonder how that might connect with the problems of, um, of adaptation, of uh, consciousness, of, you know, this like connection to the world um, in, in some maybe religious sense even. Um, mm. I, I, I know that it's a um, sort of also just a, a really good way to tell a story, right? To get to have a character to be able to sort of talk about what's going on in their own mind. Um, so, so as you think about the demons, um, what sorts of things, uh, what sorts of things do you um, sort of latch on to there as, as being mm -hmm. worth further delving into um, academically or just uh -huh. readers? Um, the demons are wonderful, and I'm not sure that I understand all of their implications, yeah. but here's where i think pullman seems to be drawing at least a little bit on jungian psychology as well as 
um, the platonic idea of the tripart soul, tripartite soul, yeah. um, because there's this notion of the anima or the animus, depending on your gender, yeah. and how um, how the demon is generally speaking the opposite sex of the person who um, who uh, whose demon they are mm -hmm. um, that they are uh, sort of an emblem of the way that we are both divided and complete <laughs> that yeah. that we can have arguments in our heads between different aspects of ourselves you know the old cartoons would set it up as a, a devil on one side and an angel on the other um Pullman makes it a much more appealing and i think more human paradoxically emblem by having it be a, a familiar an animal spirit that both expresses your identity but also provi provides you with an opportunity to push back against an aspect of yourself in a more material concrete way than perhaps we are able to do when we're just arguing in our own heads <laughs> um the demons are just such a wonderful conceit i think it's one of the most attractive things about that first book it's it's what the, the idea that we wouldn't not have the same experience of loneliness because we would always have a companion with us mm -hmm. and you know lyra's first impulse if, when she hears of um, creatures without demons like the bears is they must be so lonely right mm -hmm. um and so that that sense of being your own company perhaps is is one of the most uh, uh one of the appealing things about demons but then um you, you started your question with asking about conscience and mm -hmm. consciousness, and it's sort of interesting that the demon embodies both of those things. It's both supposed to be a conscience in the sense that it's your, uh, what the old Victorian books used to call your inward monitor, your, your uh, uh, voice of, of uh, ethics and morality, but also what might egg you on or guide you or um, offer another perspective or um, allow you to explore different aspects of a, the same problem so it it um, opens up the possibility for a more uh, deconstructed notion of the self right. then perhaps we are inclined to do if we think of ourselves as sovereign individuals yeah, yeah. Well, I'm thinking about so in one of the new, in the new book, I guess there's at least one character who's got a um, a whole flock of butterflies for a demon, right? And so I, I feel like Pullman himself is still sort of exploring. All yes. Of, you know, having a having a familiar spirit uh, in whatever way it's manifesting, and she's like a sort of a fairy queen, actually, right? She uh, mm -hmm. tries to steal uh, the baby Lyra. Uh, spoiler alert. <laughs> uh, but, but <laughs> well, Bonneville is another really interesting yeah. one. I, I am just uh, terrified by Bonneville. And really? yeah. he is so, um, the scenes where he is so, you know, 
overtly in conflict with his own demon are so disturbing. Sadomasochistically. Yes, yes. Um, But also, um, because of the gendered nature, nature of that interaction, it's, to me, even more troubling um, because he's not just beating an animal or an aspect of himself. He's beating a female aspect of himself. Like when he beats the, the hyena, it's, it's just, I haven't quite worked out what I think about it, but it's, it's clearly um, a more audacious and less comforting notion of what a demon might mean Mm -hmm. for you uh, than some of the, earliest renderings where he was saying, well, it's just a way of understanding who you are, right? Mm-hmm. And that that great conversation that Lyra has with the old shipman on the, the boat where he says, well, you know, you get what you get. And if you don't like it, well, tough, because that's who you are. <laughs> yeah, I, I find it really interesting how well, a couple of things, you know, as you as you study a living author, it's always kind of tricky because they'll come out with a new book that'll, you know, completely undermine some great theory you've got going. On the other hand, yes. there's this this danger of taking the things that characters within the book say as if they're, you know, speaking the author's mind. Mm-hmm. And, and I think Pullman does an interesting job of kind of distancing himself from certain aspects of what's in his books. Well, at the same time, you know, really owning that he's got an intention with what he read, you know, has a moral kind of crusade that he's on in his fiction. Right. Well, and he is continuing to follow the story, isn't mm-hmm. he? Um, he is not letting his inner tyrant take over completely <laughs> uh, in that he is he is trying to follow the logic of of um, what it means, what it might mean for different sorts of people to have demons. Yeah, have you had a chance to look at his collection of essays uh, that was released kind of at the same time as the new book? It was called Demon Voices. I have it on my shelf, but un- alas, I have not yet looked at it. Okay. I, uh, it's on my list. <laughs> right on. Uh, is there a particular essay you would recommend? I, I read, I've read it through a couple times, and um, there's, there's one big absence in the book, actually, that uh, is his his sketch, his autobiographical sketch that used to be posted on his website. Um, I was really hoping that that would make it into the book and that there might be more stuff about his work as a teacher, which he uh-huh. in essay, because I'm very interested in, in that side of things, like, you know, the role of stories for education, basically, and, and sort of like how you can get more pleasure, you know, in in formal schooling, if that's even possible. But, but so there's yeah. a little bit of that stuff in other essays. Um, there's one called uh, Let's Write It in Red or something like that that was new to me and that I really enjoy and have gone back to. Um, mm-hmm. But of course, you know, it just is really nice to have like a an edited version of a lot of stuff that you might have been able to find, you know, online or in bits and pieces elsewhere of, you know, different speeches yeah. and stuff yeah. like that. Um, so, yeah, I, I recommend it. Um, I bring it up just because it's, you know, it's this other sort of channel of his creativity, all of these speeches, all of these essays and things that he clearly puts a lot of time and effort into alongside, you know, the, the work of his, his own, you know, storytelling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I wonder, I guess, partly um, from your vantage point of, of reading a lot of, you know, 
um, criticism and uh, theory and, and things about uh, Pullman. Is there is there particular work out there, either book length or, or essays or monographs or whatever, that you'd really recommend as having you know, uncovered something and maybe shown a, a real interesting way of reading uh, Pullman? Well, I think you can't go wrong with the, the collection that came out um, many years ago now, the His Dark Materials Illuminated, yeah. uh, edited by Millicent Lenz and Carol Scott. That, that's just a very good collection of a lot of different uh, strong essays. Um, I haven't read anything really mind-blowing recently. Yeah. Um, I think people are probably waiting until <laughs> he's got more of the the second trilogy out, the Book of Dust trilogy out, before they commit themselves. I get this sense. But I'm hoping that I start seeing some uh, essays come across my desk that are about the new, the new stuff that's going on. Yeah. Um, I, I haven't read any either about the new books in particular. Um, and I, I'm it's, curious. It's still early, right? Mm -hmm. It usually takes a couple years for stuff to appear in print after, you know, I mean, unless it's blogged or, or yeah. know, immediately uh, electronically posted. Yeah, that, I, that um, you also mentioned his, um, his Sally Lockhart work uh, mm -hmm. earlier. And I, I read that a while ago and I've been meaning to reread it. Um, I, I'm curious too about sort of that, that sort of Victorian um, detective story-esque thing that he does, that he, he seems to love, you know, he seems to want to, incorporate I, I feel like the Bonneville character in a weird way is, is kind of a, a version of that actually um, oh yeah you're right I think yeah he's, like a, yeah, he's, he's very steampunky before steampunk was a thing right don't you think yeah absolutely it I I don't know if he um, again is like sort of consciously trying to uh, invent something or, or do something with genre or if it's just that that's the kind of thing that comes out of the the reading and the I don't know the experience that he's he's had. Um, but yeah, is there is there good writing about the Sally Lockhart books? I, I haven't actually investigated this myself. Oh, I I'm feeling like I haven't done my homework, but I can't recommend anything. That's okay off the top of my head i'm sorry no no worries <laughs> but um, i would say go to project news and look at what's being uh published in um uh children's literature association quarterly the lion and the unicorn children's literature and marvels and tales and generally um good stuff is showing up there if if it's being written about pullman it's the odds are it's going to show up there mm -hmm. yeah that so those things um to get uh involved with writing academically it seems almost everyone seems to you know be a professor at a university um but what i mean what would you say about like just kind of opening up um a bigger audience for this kind of writing or um casting a wider net um mm -hmm. i mean the, I, i'm sure that there's pros and cons um but but you you i'm sure have seen um, a lot more. It seems like you have read just about everything that's been written about Pullman at this point. Um, 
So, so what is your kind of takeaway from, from where things come from uh, as to the quality of what it's going to be? Well, there's a really strong uh, fan component that I don't think you can overlook today where there's such smart people working on blogs and, and responding to um, new work uh, in that context. Um, I think what fan work is really good at is dealing with the textures and um, uh, quiddities of a work. Mm -hmm. uh, fans are, as you know, I, I think you and I are probably on the same page here. You delight in knowing the really obscure details and mm -hmm. ferreting out the really uh, um, obscure uh references and, and that kind of thing. And there's a certain triumph when you finally figure out this yeah. one question that you had, uh, that you would love a footnote for, right? Yeah. So there's that kind of pleasure in digging into the text that I think fans are particularly good at. I think what academic writers do really well is start setting that pleasurable investment in the text in conversation with larger conversations that are going on. Mm -hmm. So so whether it's uh, questions about theodicy or child rearing or genre or um, psychology, uh, academic writers are used to sort of fitting this into questions about why we write what we do and what sticks and what's important and uh, what are what is value? What is morality? What is what is the good? Um, and so I think that's that's what um, academic writers excel at. That that sort of comes back to that question about the canon in a way, right? Sort of like mm -hmm. establishing a sort of um, context uh, of of or a kind of conversation between between books that are um, really sort of showing us something that otherwise we would be missing or that we it would behoove us to know about. Um, I, I, I wonder about the, um, the outlook then for um, the study of Pullman. So I, have, you, have you also had a chance to teach his work uh, in an academic setting and, or, or are you kind of like, scheming about ways you might be able to do that, how, how that would fit in. Uh, yeah, I've, I've twice had the opportunity to teach a class um, structured around Pullman, and it was so much fun. Um, I called it Innocence and Experience, right. and we basically uh, spent the entire semester talking about all of Pullman's inspirations yeah. and then ending with Pullman and where he was going from there. Um, and so we started with Genesis and we started with um, some of the, the um, early uh, Hebrew and Christian responses to Genesis and then moved into Paradise Lost and uh, William Blake and took it all, all the way to the 21st century. And students loved it i mean they 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 were interested in the sources they were interested in the ways that those sources look different once you 
see them in this context, not of here's what you have to believe, but look at all the different ways that people have responded to this very simple story, right? Um, and so that, that became a really wonderful way to talk about uh, not only um, different ways of reading Genesis, but also different ways of reading Pullman. Yeah, that's fascinating. And, and so um, you included, I assume, uh, the Kleist essay in there too, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. What do you make of that? That's such a strange, I've not read any more of Kleist beyond that, but it's, it's such a weird little uh, uh, dialogue, right? It's, mm-hmm. uh, and, and there's, of course, the bear, you know, he takes that uh, whole cloth and the, the fencing with the bear mm-hmm. thing. Um, but wh- how, do, how do you make sense of that essay? Um, <laughs> read on that. Um, I think the essay is talking about something slightly different from what Pullman hmm. does with it, which is fine. You know, he, Kleist is doing one thing and Pullman is doing another, but it seems to me that what really lights his fire there is that notion that once you've left this state of grace of um, the unselfconsciousness of childhood, you can't ever get that back. And so you have no choice but to go forward. Mm -hmm. Now for Kleist, I think he interprets this as a kind of tragedy. You know, it's an existential tragedy that this is just the way life is. So you've just got to go forward. Um, And and some of us may get to the divine um, place uh, implied by that full circle metaphor that that Kleist uses, but that that is clearly something that's only going to happen after death, you know, that it's not something to be expected in this life. Pullman, on the other hand, chooses to read that as a really optimistic and uh, to use a buzzword, I suppose, an empowering metaphor for why we shouldn't give up once we lose our childhood um, on self-consciousness. That consciousness in itself is a gift and something to be treasured and um, harnessed and worked through and um, trained and uh, uh, fed. (laughs) Um, I'm not sure. I'm realizing that the words that I'm using here uh, might take us back to the tyrant image that we started with the, the theory of authorship. Um, so do you harness consciousness? Do you, do you train it in a, an abusive way, like a, a bad uh, dog owner? Or is it something that um, is nurtured, um, pleasurably uh, worked out, uh, sort of like training for a triathlon or something? Is it something that... Um, allows us to regain that grace um, only through um, the kind of intense, focused, inspired um, effort that a dancer does to become a really good dancer or a painter does to become a really good painter. That it's this combination of inspiration again and discipline. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That, that aspect of sort of 
um, apprenticeship and and dedication to the craft, right? That that's mm -hmm. another thing I think Pullman is really strong on as far as you know what he does as a writer uh, is just work really hard, <laughs> <laughs> which which doesn't always look like much, right? He might just sort of be sitting there fiddling with stuff at his desk or like leafing through papers or, or whatever, but but that he is like you know putting in the time and and that that is like really a valuable. Um, work essentially yeah yeah well, yeah you've got to do the scales um at, at, to stretch your voice and strengthen your voice in order to sing the aria yeah whatever it is well cool well, so so what are you working on these days what is your current project or your um your kind of your outlook here as you uh, get ready for another year of school coming up uh, well, I'm working on two things right now. I'm working on an edited collection of uh, the cultural history of the fairy tale in the long 19th century. Um, so I'm working with a bunch of authors to um, generate a, a, a view of what is happening in culture and fairy tale during the 19th century. And then um, I'm also working on a... Um, chapter on children's literature and religion for another edited collection and then at the the back of all of this is um, a book project that i've been working on for a very long time which is thinking about how children's fantasy uh from the 19th century to now is reinventing um god in different ways and so of course i'm including Pullman in that, but I'm also really interested in Terry Pratchett and um, Diana Wynne-Jones and uh, Charles Kingsley, uh, George MacDonald, and of course, uh, C.S. Lewis and, and J.R. Tolkien. Yeah, that's, a, that's quite a fascinating project. I mean, I could see why it might take a while, <laughs> but, but, um, but the the only Diana Wynne Jones that I'm familiar with, unfortunately, is the uh, the animated version of Howl's Moving Castle. Have you had a chance uh, to look at that? Yes, yes, cool. it's lovely. Yeah, it, it's, yeah, it's um, it's very Miyazaki. <laughs> um, they are they share a kind of. Um, quirky sensibility, uh, Miyazaki and Diana Wynne-Jones. Um, so, so I can see, see why they, they go together well, but also it's very, very different from a lot of what she works with. Yeah. Um, she's, she's got her own sensibility that is definitely not Miyazaki. In, in the <laughs> um, I'm not being very uh, concrete. You'll just have to read some of her stuff and and find out for yourself. I certainly, yeah, I certainly would like to. I know, I know you brought her into a, a, a pretty short essay that I was able to find on your academia page, actually, about um, sort of the role of Eros in. Yes. Uh, and, and she came out looking like a really amazing author. So I, I really need to read. Her she is. <laughs> she totally is. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, um, uh, I'm behind on my reading of, of that. I, I need to get to that. We all are. We are all always already behind. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's the last thing I would, I would say, I guess, about um, the canon is like, ideally, it's a way to sort of get a sense of what you, what you should spend your time reading, right? Like, when you boil it down, like, I, I feel like that's kind of what education is. It's like, 
a, a prescription of like you have only so much time so so use it well like here's the best things to look at and i know i'm aware that that's got to be a very outmoded you know viewpoint but i in some sense that's like that seems like sort of the human condition right you know we're limited we've got only so much time to do stuff um so so yeah what, how do you kind of i don't know um, um manage that <laughs> in the deconstructed world um the way I manage it is I try to read stuff I'm really excited about. Yeah. So, for example, I just uh, in the last year finished um, the N.K. Jemison Broken Earth trilogy. Everyone tells me this is so it's good. So good. Ah. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> okay. Um, and, you know, Things like that, that where people whose opinions I trust uh, say, you really need to read this. I really need to read that. Yeah. I just this summer read um, oh, Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sowers. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's, it's another just amazing piece of literature that does things that I think uh, Pullman doesn't do so well, which is engaging with questions of, of race and mm -hmm. racism um, in really smart and interesting ways. So, um, yeah, all you can do is just try to keep reading as much as possible, right? Because you're never going to read it all. But, but for me, um, a couple of years ago, I w was uh, talked into writing some chapters for um, uh, in-house um, Bible textbook for our um, Bible class mm -hmm. in our department. And I probably shouldn't have agreed to do it because I had so many other things I should have been doing instead. But it was so much fun to just read and dig into what people know and think about the past and the history of the Bible and how it was written and what we can and cannot know about it and um, the differing opinions that different confessions have about particular episodes. It was just the greatest thing ever. So I think you got to just go with what you love, right? You've got to go with, with what makes you excited to read some more, <laughs> whatever that is. Yeah, I feel like I feel like Pullman's work, you know, um, far from making me, you know, more of an atheist or whatever, has made me more interested in, in all the sources you mentioned, like the Bible, Milton, Blake. Um, it, and so it's interesting to kind of do this, this like that circle from Kleist, right? You, you start with Pullman as a kid, in my case, or, you know, with, Nar with Narnia books or whatever it is as a kid. Mm -hmm. And that sort of is the gateway that leads you into all this other, you know, great stuff. And, and of course, there's other things that are, uh, I don't know, um, in that same conversation that, that need to be sort of held up and, um, and brought to the fore, right? Uh, the, the Butlers and the Jemisons and, and all of that as well. Um, but it's, it's, it's this kind of great, uh, I don't know, like, yeah, this, um, this push and pull at the same time that you get mm -hmm. forward into the future, the progress, and back into the past and all of its mysteries. And, and yeah, yeah. I, I think the thing, the, the most valuable thing that Pullman does in that regard is by making us confront those old texts in a new way yeah. to make us realize that we're not as sure about what's in them as we thought we were. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. They're very platonic or, or Socratic approach. There. Yeah. 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 
Well, cool. Well, um, I'll, I'll look forward to um, hopefully talking to you again. Uh, yeah. Future, if that's all right. Um, this that was very, a pleasure. It would, will be a pleasure. It's been very fun. And, and thank you again. I'm very grateful for your time. Um, thank you. I'll let you go. All Take right. Bye-bye.